The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I love studying church history. I love looking back at what our brothers and sisters in Christ have done in the past and learning its lessons and just seeing the movements of the Spirit of God at different times. And one of my favorite groups are the Moravians. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf was a German nobleman who was living a selfish life. And at some point he was convicted by a a painting of Christ crucified And a caption below it which said, all this I did for you, what are you doing for me? He was convicted by that and he began to use his estate and his money to bless refugees in Europe who were fleeing various uh, scourges and afflictions and wars. And he drew a community together of people there at what came to be known as Herrenhut for refuge and, and to do them good in Christ's name. And the community grew there. But after a number of years, there started to be deep divisions, bitter divisions among the people. They came from a lot of different backgrounds and they were humans. They were sinners. And there was strife and there was discord. So Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf called on his community in, in 1727 to extended sacrificial prayer. And within a short amount of time, a revival broke out there in that Moravian community. It was what they later called the Golden Summer, summer of 1727. And they began to give themselves in extraordinary ways to fervent prayer. And they had the idea, based on the way the sacrificial system worked in the Old Testament, that the fire would never go out from the altar, that they should start a prayer chain 24 hours a day, seven days a week and just continue and they had 24 people sign up for slots one hour shifts to carry it through that first week and it continued on that prayer vigil continued on well beyond the first week even well beyond the first year to last well over a hundred years unbroken now some of you who love sports you talk about the unbreakable records friends that's an unbreakable record of unbroken prayer. It will never be topped again. Over, I think actually in the end, 120 years, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Six months after it started, Count Zinzendorf called on the people to begin praying for missions, to pray that their community would be a force for world evangelization, for missions. Now, you have to understand at that point, there really wasn't any formal pattern of Protestant missions. This is a little less than 70 years before William Carey. There had been Jesuit missionaries that went out in the name of the Roman Catholic Church, but there was, there were, there was no organized, sustained pattern of Protestant missions. And so this was pretty much unheard of, this bold evangelism thrust. So they began praying for the West Indies, for the sugar plantations there where there were many slaves working, for Greenland, for Turkey and Lapland and other places, Turkey being dominated by the, uh, by the Muslims, and praying that God would use their community for missions. The next day, 26 Moravians stepped forward, willing to serve wherever the Lord called on them to serve. They were the first of an unprecedented unprecedented missionary thrust linked to 
this fervent 24-hour prayer chain. The two went together. And so these missionaries, over the next 60-plus years, the Moravian community sent out over 300 missionaries. Moravians would hold funerals for those that they were commissioning because they assumed that they would go and die for the service of Christ. So you think about the boldness and the courage and the tears that would be shed as they would hold funerals for people and commission them and then put them on on ships and send them off. Some, as, as is well known, went to the plantations in the West Indies and enslaved and dentured themselves to win the slaves for Christ. The level of boldness and courage and self-sacrifice was incredible. Now they are just one of many examples in church history of the indissoluble link between fervent prayer and bold evangelistic outreach. And that's going to be the focus of the sermon today as we look at Ephesians 6, 19 and 20 especially. Over the last number of weeks we've had the, the opportunity to look at this final section of Paul's uh, great letter to the Ephesians. And he finishes with spiritual warfare, a focus on spiritual warfare. And it culminates in his command to pray in the Spirit for all the saints. And then these verses in which he encourages or urges them to pray for him as he shares the gospel. And so we have learned about spiritual warfare. Look again at Ephesians 6, 10 and following. There it says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. So we have learned about this invisible spiritual warfare that we Christians have to wage. We have invisible powerful enemies. Satan and his demonic rulers and authorities and powers in the heavenly realms. This is the nature of our warfare that Paul talks about here. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. So there's a wrestling, a warfare that we have to go through. As I've said week after week, I believe every Christian greatly underestimates this spiritual warfare. I think it's true even still. You can hear dozens of sermons on spiritual warfare and still vastly underestimate the power of Satan and demons on your life every day and the need that you have to obey these verses. And remember how I organized and gave you the focus of those three commands That Paul's calling us. First, be strong in the Lord. Draw close to Jesus. Have a sense that you cannot fight on your own. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Secondly, put on the full armor of God. We've talked about each part being put on with prayer. And so we looked at them. We looked at the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And, and we talked about the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit. These six elements. And how it's not good for us to just, in a very vague general sense, yeah, we've got to get ready for spiritual warfare. But these words focus our minds on doctrinal truths about our salvation that get us ready in a very effective way to fight Satan, to stand firm against Satan. And so we put these things on with prayer. And then we focused on on prayer, the need to pray and to get ready. 
And having done all of these things, praying in the Spirit, having done all these things, to stand, to stand firm. And we're not going to give in to the temptation. We're not going to crumble. We're not going to melt. But we're going to stand firm and resist the devil. And then we focused on prayer, what it means to pray in the Spirit. We talked first about praying in the Spirit. I looked at the book of Revelation and looked at various themes there. Focus on Christ the mediator, God enthroned, the sovereign king over all the world, the vision of Babylon and seeing the wickedness of this world system, and then the future glory of the church. These four themes are valuable for praying in the Spirit, and we're going to think about that. But especially, praying in the Spirit just means to pray for the things the Spirit wants us to pray for in the power or in the manner or demeanor that the Spirit gives. Praying in the Spirit. Now, in all of this, I want you to see the link between spiritual warfare and the two infinite journeys that God has given us to make progress in. We are called on first to make progress in Christ-likeness, in holiness. We are to make progress and to become more and more uh, conformed to Christ. And secondly, we are called on to take the gospel to those who are not yet believers in Christ, even to the distant lands who have never heard of Jesus. And we're to take the gospel to the lost, to the perishing, and boldly see the advance of the kingdom of God. These two journeys, the internal journey of sanctification of holiness, the external journey of worldwide gospel spread, both of them will be bitterly opposed by Satan. And so it's right for us to think of warfare prayer in in light of both of those. There's going to be warfare prayer for personal holiness. And friends, there's going to be warfare prayer for gospel advance. And that's what I want to focus my attention on here. I want to keep verse 19 and 20 in the context, the overall context of spiritual warfare. Look again at at the verses. Verse 19 and 20. Paul prays. He says, pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now my basic doctrine, the basic idea in this sermon is this. Without warfare prayer, the gospel will not advance. Therefore... We should seek prayer partners for ourselves to be bold and faithful in sharing the gospel. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Part of it, part of the logic of the message is, if Paul needed prayer for boldness, how much more do you and I? And we're going to talk about that, but if he needed that, we need it, I would say, even more. So we're going to talk about it. So prayer and evangelism are absolutely inseparable. Paul was continually seeking prayer for for evangelistic outreach from the churches that he planted, from individuals that he knew. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2 is an example. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and may be held in honor just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. So that's prayer for the external journey, prayer for the gospel to spread rapidly and be held in honor. Same thing in Romans 15. Romans 15, there's extended requests of prayer that Paul has for the Roman church. Church he'd never met, hoping to be there, to go there someday. And he wrote the book of Romans in lieu of his visiting them. But he wanted to go to them at some point. And so in Romans 15, he talks about his ministry. And he says, I have written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me, 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Spirit. In other words, I'm like a priest with a duty, and my job is to go to Gentile cities and towns and preach the gospel so that they, the Gentiles, might become an offering to God through faith in Christ. He said, that's my ministry. That's what I'm called to do. Now, he says, especially, Romans 15, 20, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, the, the regions beyond so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will hear, and those who have not heard will understand. So I want to go to the distant lands. That's my calling. So then, in Romans 15, 24, he says, I hope to visit you while I'm passing through on my way to Spain, and have you help me and assist me in my journey there. And then he says in verse 30 and 31 of Romans 15, he culminates it, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there. So Paul did this all the time. He's continually asking people, horizontally, asking people, pray for me in my witnessing. Pray for me in my evangelistic ministry. Paul was very well aware that the gospel advance to the Gentiles would be bitterly opposed by Satan and his demons. He says in some point, we wanted to visit you again and again, but Satan stopped us. So he has a sense of satanic opposition. He was acutely aware of his need for prayer, and so he regularly solicited prayer from churches and individuals for the success of his gospel ministry. Now, as I've said before, and I'll probably say at least one more time, if Paul needed prayer for boldness in evangelism, how much more do you and me? Paul was, I think, the boldest, most consistent, most faithful witness for Jesus Christ in the history of the Christian church. I don't think there's anybody that can top him. Paul had a track record and habit of boldness. He had seen fruit from his boldness. He had seen the effectiveness of his boldness. So he had all of those things going for him. He had a habit of boldness and track record and pattern. He had, he had clear results from his boldness. Everything was wired. He said, I really need prayer for boldness. We have, for the most part, none of those things. We don't have the habits of boldness, it seems. We don't have that track record. We don't have a pattern of fruitfulness in this boldness. We don't see what it'll do, and we know what, you know, we've been through this many times before. We need it even more. That's the basic logic of this sermon. Now, throughout church history, prayer and gospel advance have been woven together from the very beginning of the history of the church. So, you know, in Acts 1 and 2, we see a clear indication of that. In Acts 1, the church is there after Jesus has ascended to heaven. The church is there in the upper room. They're praying and waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Father has promised. And they're up in the upper room and they're praying. And they're together and they're praying together. And then suddenly on the day of Pentecost, there came the sound like the rushing of a violent wind that came from heaven and filled the whole room where they were sitting. A sound like a hurricane. First it was sound. Then it was the sight of flames of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them spoke in other languages as the Spirit moved them. A crowd gathered because of the sound of of the rushing wind. They didn't know what it was. 
And there was a crowd there anyway because it was a Jewish festival, the festival of the Pentecost. So there's huge crowds and they gathered near that house. They poured out, the church poured out, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God boldly and the apostles preached and Peter preached. And, and everyone from all over the world heard them speaking in their own languages. And 3,000 were added to the number that day. 3,000 were baptized into the church of Jesus Christ. So it's prayer leading to bold pouring out of evangelistic activity. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John going up at the time of prayer and they, they heal a, a very well-known beggar. Crowd gathers, they preach. They're arrested, they're brought in. It's the beginning of, of aggressive persecution, but it's at a mild level at that early stage. So the Jewish council, the same ones that had condemned Jesus, now were ready to condemn Peter and John and the whole church. But they weren't ready yet to arrest him or punish him or whatever. They, so they just warned them not to preach at all in the name of Jesus. That was not going to happen. But the question is, what did Peter and John do? They immediately went back and gathered the church together at the end of Acts chapter 4. And they had a fervent time of prayer. And they prayed scripturally. They prayed based on the sovereignty of God. The things that had happened in that city. And they asked God not for a removal of persecution. No, not at all. They said, oh God, give us boldness and power to preach in the name of Jesus and to perform great signs and wonders. And God answered their prayer and they spoke the word of God boldly and many more people were brought to faith in Christ. So again, we see fervent corporate prayer leading to evangelistic boldness. We see the same thing again and again throughout church history. Acts 10, Peter is, you know, at the, at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea and he's praying and he's hungry. Has a vision of a sheet let down with all kinds of nasty, unclean animals. And he's told, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And three times he's told, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. He's getting him ready to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. One to Christ by the preaching of the church. And he goes there, he crosses the threshold as a a Bible-believing Jew. He felt he wasn't supposed to go in there, but God showed him that he should go. And he preached to Cornelius, this Roman centurion, and all of his assembled uh, Gentile friends and family. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and that was the beginning of, of Gentile evangelism that's been basically going on for 20 centuries ever since. It wasn't long after that that the church in Antioch gathered predominantly, at that point, Gentile. And they were gathered by the ministry of those that went out and began to speak to Gentiles. And there started to be a, a church growing there in Antioch. And in Acts 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, while they were together praying, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And, and so that the Holy Spirit, in answer to prayer, set apart Paul and Barnabas for Paul's first missionary journey. And so the church is moving out. The gospel's spreading. And so they go to Cyprus. They go to Asia Minor. They begin going. Paul goes on three missionary journeys. It dominates the book of Acts. But it's in specifically an answer to prayer. As a matter of fact, in one of those missionary journeys, Paul didn't know what to do. He's blocked in. He didn't know where to go. And in, in prayer, he has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so the Holy Spirit guided him through prayer. Again and again. And even once the New Testament era ended, we have the same pattern. Just study church history. You'll see. God's people gather together for prayer. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then they move out in new ways to share the gospel with the lost. We just see this again and again, this pattern. For example, in uh, the 6th century, we have a, a Celtic missionary named Columba who gathered a community around him in a tiny windswept island of Iona near Scotland, a small, bleak, barren, foggy island battered by the, by the storms of the sea year-round. Iona became a glowing center of biblical Christianity, of Celtic Christianity, and a launching pad for missions across Europe. 
went on for centuries after that. Columba himself, led by example, is one of my favorite stories from missionary history. Columba went to the fierce northern Picts, P-I-C-T-S, of Scotland. Some of the fiercest people that have ever been brought to Christ. These Scottish Highlanders, terrifying. The Romans couldn't conquer them. Scary people. Columba went and sat outside their citadel, could not gain entrance, did not realize how close they were to killing him. That's just kind of what they did. And he just sat outside the gates and fasted and prayed that he'd have a hearing with King Bruda. What a name, Bruda. B-R-U-D-E. Finally, probably just to get rid of him, the king, instead of killing him, calls him in. Eventually, Columba led him and his inner circle to Christ, and it spread out from there, and many of those picks came to faith in Christ and became themselves evangelists and missionaries to that region of the world. It's incredible. It's happened again and again. Go ahead even beyond Herrenhut, even beyond the Moravians. The Moravians sent missionaries to the New World. They went back and forth on ships. One of those times, the Moravian missionaries were going back to Europe, and John Wesley was on board with them, and there was a terrible storm, and it looked like the ship was going to, going to uh, sink in that storm. Moravians are singing and praising God and ready for heaven. <laughs> and John Wesley wasn't. And he realized, essentially, that he was unconverted. He had had lots of Christian Orthodox training, but he didn't know Christ, not the way these Moravians did. Eventually, he came to a genuine faith in Christ. He was the part of, a, of a, a holy club there at Oxford. George Whitfield, also part of that, his brother Charles, and some others. And they gathered to pray. And they're, and they're praying together, 1738. Uh, by this point, George Whitfield had begun preaching, field preaching. And had gone across to the, uh, the, the colonies and had come back. And they're having this prayer time. It's, he has a gift of evangelism, but uh, God has something far bigger than that. On December 8, 1738, they went to a Christian meeting in Fetter Lane. And they spent time in prayer for the spread of the gospel in England. These are in, in, in Wesley's journals. Then they prayed again 17 days later on Christmas Day. Praying till 4 in the morning for the spread of the gospel in England. Over 300 believers there praying till 4 in the morning. But the greatest of these prayer meetings happened on New Year's Day, 1739. As they prayed till three in the morning, suddenly the Holy Spirit was poured out on the group so astonishingly that everyone there immediately fell on the ground and began crying out in worship to God. We praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. Whitfield wrote in his journal these words. Sometimes whole nights were spent in prayer after that. Often we have been filled as with new wine. And often we have seen people overwhelmed with the divine presence and crying out, will God indeed dwell with men upon earth? How dreadful is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the very gate of heaven. Well, after that series of extraordinary prayer meetings, there came an awakening so great, the first great awakening, that there's never been anything like it before or since spread all over England, all over northern Europe, throughout the colonies, leading to the salvation of tens of thousands. A couple generations later, in August 1806, western Massachusetts, there was a sudden thunderstorm that drove five students from nearby Williams College to rest under a haystack and under a lean-to to find shelter from the storm and to pray. What had happened was uh, they began discussing a geography lesson that they had had in, at the college that day. And they began praying for the distant lands that they just learned about in reference to the geography. Samuel Mills was among them and others. God led them powerfully 
to have the idea of being the first American mission board formed. One of their students was Abner Judson. He was the first American missionary. He and his wife, Anne, Nancy, was sent to Burma. This haystack prayer meeting became a fountain of missions in the U.S. for decades after that. One of them came back was Luther Rice. En route, the Judsons had converted to Baptist theology. And so the congregational mission sending agency that had sent them cut them off. So Luther Rice came back and started a a Baptist mission sending agency, which eventually led to the Southern Baptist Convention and the International Mission Board, which is something that we contribute to. Samuel Mills, who was part of that haystack prayer meeting, gave his entire life to recruiting foreign missionaries. Five men under a haystack praying in a rainstorm. The world gets changed. This happens time and time again. So let me speak plainly. First Baptist Church, we need to pray for evangelistic fruit. We need to pray in a fervent, powerful, spiritual warfare kind of sense that the gospel would spread from us to reach Durham and Raleigh and Chapel Hill and and influence to the ends of the earth, even to distant lands in ways we can't even imagine. We need to pray like that. For years, we have recognized that FBC has amazing opportunities to spread the gospel in this booming region. Just people flowing into this area from all over the country, indeed from all over the world. They're coming here to live. What are our responsibilities? What are our opportunities in reference to that? There are thousands of college students that are coming here to study at the great universities that are around here. Duke and NC State and Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill, Central, Durham Tech. We've got thousands of college students and most of them are unchurched. Most of them are lost. We see refugees coming in or just people from other countries. Like, for example, the Gujarati that we have adopted and working with James Cooper, uh, we have adopted to plant a church among the Gujarati. They are extremely hard to reach in India, but they're here. And we can reach them. They're here in Morrisville. We have undocumented aliens that are here working in our community. We have refugees that have come in, even from Iraq. We've been able to meet a family recently. So glad to meet them. Delighted. And a chance to reach out with the gospel to people who come to this area. We have great medical care here. We have great hospitals. Research hospitals. So people with dread diseases come from all over the country. Indeed from all over the world. To receive medical care here. And medical uh, professionals come to work here. We have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. We're an urban center. We live in, a, in, a, in an urban area. We can reach the urban poor. We can be a voice for racial reconciliation in this state and indeed in this, in this nation. We have opportunities. But for all of that, I think we do not see a corresponding or a proportional evangelistic fruit. We don't see the fruit that we would love to see, that we should see, really. My friend Mark Dever has been pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for several decades now. On Sunday evenings, they gather together... And they have a Sunday evening service. They have their small groups scattered throughout the week. But they have a Sunday evening service. And it's basically just an evangelistic testimony and prayer sharing time. And so just people from all over that group that come say, hey, I'm trying to reach uh, my boss. I'm trying to reach a coworker. There's a neighbor who's just moved in named so-and-so. We'd love to have them over. And just we, we need prayer. We'd love you guys to pray for us for that. And this kind of stuff's going on in all this. What we would call a culture of evangelism. Of getting prayer for evangelistic projects that God's laid on our hearts. For people that we're trusting God for. 
Now, I don't think that we at FBC believe the facts of the gospel any less than they do at CHBC. I don't think so. I think we really believe the facts of the gospel. I think we, we, we believe that people have to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saved. I, I think we, we would assent to that. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is beautiful and true and powerful. We know that. So why don't we share it more? Well, I can only conclude that Satan has done a beguiling work of deception on our hearts that will look very different to us on Judgment Day. And that we need to fight spiritual warfare battle to become more effective evangelistically. If we just maintain the status quo, we will not be effective evangelistically. But if we fight and fight together as a body of Christ, as we hold each other up and pray with and for each other, we will be more fruitful evangelistically. I think that a Satan especially works in our hearts in reference to fear of man. We fear other people, what they will do to us, what they'll think of us. And the Lord has shown us again and again how we can overcome fear of man and in a powerful love for him share the gospel. Now what I want to do is look at details of Ephesians 6, 19 and 20 and see how we can learn from Paul's re- uh, prayer request there, how we can pray for each other. First I want to go to the phrase, mystery of the gospel. So look uh, toward the end of the section there. He says, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. This is going to give me an opportunity to kind of summarize what we've learned about that from the book of Ephesians. We're almost done. Next week will be, God willing, the last sermon that I'll preach in Ephesians. And I don't think any book more clearly unfolds the depths and the glories and the beauty of the gospel other than the book of Romans, then does Ephesians. I think those two stand towering above all the other books of the Bible in terms of clarity on the depths of doctrine that is linked to the gospel. So the mystery of the gospel. Why does Paul call it a mystery? Well, a mystery is something that was hidden for long ages past in God, but has now been revealed and made known by the Spirit. That's what he means by mystery. So look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 7. And this is the very beginning of of the epistle, and we've had opportunity to look at it a number of times. But this is the mystery of the gospel. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So putting it simply, before the foundation of the world, God chose people by name to be finally, in the end, perfectly holy and blameless forever in his sight in heaven. So before the foundation of the world, he chose them to be eternally saved in Christ. And in love, he predestined those people to be adopted as his sons and daughters. That's what it says. Now, this is a mystery. We'll never fully understand this. The depths are infinitely beyond anything that we can comprehend, but this is true. And he did all of this for the praise of his glorious grace, that he would get glory and praise from a multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping him. That's why he did it. And he gave Christ 
to be our Savior. That by Jesus, by the shedding of his blood on the cross, we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Oh, how sweet is that blessing. Think about it. All of your sins, past, present, and future, cleansed by the blood of Christ. And his final purpose in all of this was to bring all of the fractured, destroyed elements of his creation together under one head and make them one in Jesus. To bring together the the fragmentation grenade of sin, bring it together and make it one in Christ. The book also reveals how individual sinners are saved. How are they saved? Look at Ephesians 1, 11 through uh, 14. It says, in him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Look at verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you are marked in him with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Do you see that? So what that means is that individual sinners are made right with God by hearing a message that's proclaimed, and believing it. And at that moment, they are forgiven, they are drawn into Christ, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they're part of the work of God. Now, in Ephesians 2, we learn the condition of those we're trying to reach, out of which we're trying to reach them. Here's where we get to the spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, and like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. See all that past tense language? You were, you were, that's what you were, that's what they are now. They're enslaved by Satan now. They're disobedient to God's laws now. They are by nature objects of wrath now. We were like that. We were rescued out of that. But we are, they are now in Satan's dark dungeon. Do you not see then the spiritual warfare aspect of all this? Jesus said he's like a powerful warrior with armor and weapons. And he's defending his house. I would say dungeon. He's defending his dungeon. And we have to put on the armor of God. And be instruments of God's sovereign grace. And come and rescue the perishing. That's our call. That's what we're called to do. Satan's powerful, but God. But God is more powerful. Look at Ephesians 2, 4. But God, because of his great love for us, with which he loved us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Even when we're dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is the mystery of the gospel. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's the mystery of the gospel. Now, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. We are created for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And then the rest of the chapter, he talks about this beautiful spiritual temple that's rising and becoming more and more glorious all the time with living stones that are coming out of Satan's dark kingdom. And and there's this spiritual house that's rising and becoming more and more glorious. 
And those are the good works we're supposed to do. The good works of spiritual gift ministry within the church and then evangelism, reaching out, that builds the church. Beautiful. So, we are called on to reach out with the gospel. We are called on as Paul was. He says, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. So maybe we can be ambassadors unchained, at least for now. (laughs) Unchained. We are ambassadors for Christ. So what did Paul pray for specifically? Well, look at it with me. He prayed for frequent opportunities. Verse 19 and 20. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me. See that? Frequent, whenever I speak, I want to speak about Christ. So frequent opportunities. I think that's where we fail a lot of times. I think we dabble in evangelism, but we don't do that broadcast sowing of seed. We, you know, we, we'll, we'll take out a single precious seed and put it in one place. And it's like, well, God can do amazing things. He can lead a person to Christ that way. It does happen. But we, I think, are called on to be like, whenever I open my mouth kind of people. So frequent opportunities, lots of opportunities. For, Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains, right? We are called on to be Christ's ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Listen to this. As though God himself were making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. So we get to be ambassadors. We are kind of like a... An, uh, what, an on, uh, enclave of heaven, a colony of heaven. And we get to speak for the king. We get to be those that speak the gospel boldly in a surrounding hostile territory. We get to be ambassadors. He also prays for spirit-given words. Look what he says. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me. Words. So I need words. Give me words. Is that what we need? We need words. I heard like one of the most foolish slogans I've ever heard in church history. I don't know who said it. No one knows. Listen to this. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. Ever heard this one? It's about people that are really into social works. You know all that. Preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. What in the world? I remember somebody said, I think it was Tim Keller, said it's like saying feed the hungry, use food if necessary. Like what in the world does that even mean? Friends, let me just say it simply. Words are necessary. You need to speak. You need to say things to lost co-workers and neighbors and friends and family. You need to speak. But Paul says, I need to know what words to say. Now, Paul's not saying I need to reinvent the gospel every time. The gospel's set. It's done. Nothing's going to change it. But the articulation of the gospel is going to be different every time. There's going to be different situations into which you're going to speak. And you don't know what that person is, what their situation is. So feel helpless. You should feel helpless. Feel weak. Feel like I don't know what to say. What's the best way to get this timeless gospel message across to this specifically hurting, broken, enslaved sinner? How do I do it? So he asked, he said, pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me by the Spirit of God. You know how Jesus said, when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say. At that time, it will be given you what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Ask for that. Oh, God, give me Spirit-filled words, Spirit-given words. Why? Because faith comes by hearing the message. That's how they will be saved. Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call 
on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they've never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That's words. And how can they preach unless they are sent? We have got to preach the gospel. We need spirit-given words. And he prayed for boldness. He prayed for courage. Just simple fearlessness. Look again at 19 and 20. He says, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Fearlessly. Paul prayed for fearlessness. We are paralyzed by fear of what people will think. Paralyzed. I remember one time, and I've told this story before, but it's just very poignant for me. I've frequently been paralyzed by fear. I remember there was this one guy I used to work with that was so gruff. His name was Ron. And he was the chairman of the, of the or not the chairman, the uh, um, foreman, sorry, of the assembly uh, part of the floor. And uh, he just was a tough-looking guy because he was just a tough-looking person. <laughs> he was tough. And I felt the Lord leading me to share the gospel with him. And I, I'll never forget the paralyzing fear I had of crossing the floor at lunch to share with Ron. And I remember peeking around the corner, and there he was at his workbench eating alone perfect opportunity and I remember going to a friend and I said I really want to share with Ron and he got these big wise like share share what <laughs> he knew what I meant but he's like trying to just clarify um <laughs> so would you pray for me he said yeah I'll pray for you wow because um, I mean the guy was he was gruff and I remember saying all right I'm gonna put a fleece down I was so afraid I mean I said all right I'm praying that if he is still sitting at his bench eating his sandwich. That means you want me to share with him. I was like, God wants me to share with him, whether he's eating his sandwich or not. But there he was, right in the middle of a bite. I'll never forget that. My heart sank. <laughs> but I remember Marty, my friend, was praying for me, and I went around, and I, I could barely speak to this guy. You know how Paul says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And I gave him a tract, and I, I said, um, I'm a Christian. He said, I know. <laughs> And I said, well, I just think you need Jesus too. And I handed him a tract. That was all I could manage. I don't know what happened with that. I don't, I don't know. But I'm just telling you, fear is powerful uh, in many, many ways. I remember uh, an outreach that I was trying to organize in Salem. And, and uh, I don't want to go into the details. It was a Halloween outreach. And I was paralyzed that entire workday by the fear of leading a group of people to go do street evangelism in Salem that evening. But I was memorizing Isaiah 51, and it changed my life. It changed my heart. That was the night of the perfect storm, the Halloween storm, which I've told, told you guys this story before, but Isaiah 51 is just a powerful antidote to fear. He says, I, even I, and he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men, the sons of men who are but grass, <laughs> that you live in mortal fear day after day, and that you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. <laughs> Why do you fear the wrath of the oppressor who's bent on destruction? Where is the wrath of the oppressor? The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. For I am the Lord your God who churns up the sea so that its waves roar. <laughs> the Lord Almighty is his name. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, I who set the heavens in, in place and laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. Isaiah 51. 
If that's not a remedy to fear, I don't know what, what is. How could I fear what people will do? And we went out and had the, one of the greatest evangelistic outreaches I've ever had in my life. Paul felt the need for prayer very much. And he felt it to the end of his life. At the end of his life, even then, he was afraid that having been delivered to be in front of Nero, that he would fail to share the gospel with Nero. And so he was alone. I'll never forget this. One of the most powerful things I've ever seen about the Apostle Paul. He said this, at my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Second Timothy 4. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So that through me, the gospel might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. The attack is Satan's attack to get Paul to wimp out at the finish line of his life and his ministry. He didn't. God gave him strength and he was bold. So again, I'm going to say, if Paul felt the need to ask for prayer for boldness, how much more do we? I have a missionary friend that served for many years in Izmir. Uh, he's now stateside working, uh, mobilizing missionaries. He said that Satan's fear is like, I love this image, like the banner that's held by cheerleaders at the homecoming football game that the football players run through to take the field. Have you ever seen that before? They just, psh, right through. Satan puts up this wall of terror and he just run through it. It's like, okay, hmm, that wasn't so hard. What are they going to do to you? I mean, what's the worst thing they could do to you? Torture you and kill you, right? <laughs> well, Paul calls that light and momentary. And if they do do that to you, you'll receive a hero's welcome to heaven. And it happens to very few. Instead, what usually happens is we're afraid somebody might kind of sneer or snarl a little bit or intimidate or that we might be disadvantaged at work or something. God's called on us to do this. Finally, Paul prays for clarity. And this is from Colossians. I'll say it quickly and then I'll apply it to you guys. We'll be done. It says, pray also for me that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So we just need to make it clear. Let's make the gospel clear and plain to the people that we're sharing with. Application I've been making all the way through, but it's just simple. First, I just want to say something to the unsaved. I know that there are people here today that are outside of Christ. I know it. You need to know that God, the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, wants a relationship with you. He created everything, but he especially created people in his image. And he made laws by which they are to walk in his sight and be holy in his sight and love each other. But we have sinned against him. We have violated those laws. We have not loved him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors ourselves. We are sinners. And we deserve to die, not just physically, but eternally in hell. God knew we couldn't save ourselves. And so he sent Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was truly a human being, but also truly God the Son. He did wonders, signs and wonders, but especially he died in our place on the cross. The wrath of God, the justice of God poured out on him so that we sinners might be in Christ the righteousness of God and exchange our sin on Jesus and he died. His righteousness given to us and we live. You need to repent and believe in him. Just by hearing that message and believing, 
your sins will be forgiven. That's the gospel. Now, if you came in here a believer in Christ, a member, the application to you is simple too. Get friends to pray for you specifically to be more evangelistically fruitful. Just ask for people to pray for you. Get projects, people, that you're doing. Like It could be a, a specific pattern of ministry. Could be something you're doing with a, an elementary school or something. Could be an urban ministry. Could be international connections. It could be just people that you're getting to know and they're getting to know you and you would love to share with people at, at, at a coffee shop that you go to or at a supermarket or at the workplace or in your neighborhood. You could say, I want to reach our neighbors. We just don't know them. Could you just pray that we'd have an opportunity to get to know our neighbors? I would urge specifically that you use home fellowship for that. That each of you in home fellowship should have five people that you're praying for, lost people that you'd like to have opportunities for. That will be a form of accountability for you. Pray these kind of things. Say, give me opportunities to share. Give me boldness. I'm a, I'm a wimp. Give me courage that I don't wimp out. You may be a college student. Say, I want to reach my, my dorm. I want to reach the people on my floor with the gospel. Will you pray for me that I make friends for the gospel? I want to share with them, but I'm, I'm afraid. So will you pray that I would proclaim it fearlessly as I should ask for those kind of prayers and let's see what God will do close with me in prayer father we thank you for the chance we've had to hear your word and to be moved by it lord help us forgive us for our weakness forgive us that we fear other people more than we fear you forgive us that we love what other people think more than we love you help us to love the lost as you do I pray that the love of Christ would constrain us and compel us to share Help us to see more and more people water baptized and then discipled and trained in the Christian faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.